my God, it's been so long. Minutes. <laughs> how, how are you? Um, I'm doing okay. I got to run to the bathroom, have a drink of water, and do a tiny bit of work since we did our last interview. Two weeks ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have a, a, a really cool guest on today, if he made it into town. We have David Sloan Wilson. So exciting. He is a friend of mine who I've known for several years through the Evolutionary Studies Consortium, the Northeastern Evolutionary Psychology Society, and all the things. He's also Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Biology at Binghamton University and author of one of my favorite books on evolution, Evolution for Everyone, as well as a whole bunch of other books, including This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution, which is what he is here in Alabama at long last. So we always start off the podcast asking folks about their academic origin stories. And you start off your most recent book and at least one other, Evolution for Everyone, sharing your origin story or pieces of it. I know you do this a lot. Your personal history with scientists, you speak in a narrative first person voice. Um, and I wonder if you could share a little bit of that with us and our listeners and explain why you tend to write about evolution from a first-person narrative perspective. Okay, so I'll make it fast because I do write about it quite a bit. Part one is my dad was a novelist. And so uh, writing in a novelistic fashion is something that uh, you might say comes naturally to me. I don't know if it's genetic, but if not, it's certainly cultural. And uh, I've often said that I became a scientist because I really admired my dad but didn't want to compare myself to him. That was too daunting. So there's point one. Point two is that I always loved the outdoors. There's point two uh, and had access to it. And so put those together, I wanted to be a scientist and I loved the outdoors. Soon enough, I discovered I could be an ecologist. And so that uh, governed my career choice. And then I think it was just luck that I became an ecologist at a time when ecology, evolution, and behavior were just becoming fused. So I entered the field at a very formative time in the 1970s. Mm. That's the decade where Dobzhansky said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. When Ed Wilson wrote Sociobiology, and I was um, a graduate student during those times. Michigan State University had a small program, but that was very active. Um, I actually was never that good a student. And so um, <laughs> all of my colleges were my safety colleges, you might say, but they did well by me in both cases. And at Michigan State, there was a group of young faculty that were like red hot. They didn't have seniority. They were just, you know, had all the benefits of youth. And so uh, with uh, three or four of those faculty and maybe eight or nine grad students, we were red hot as a unit. And then as soon as I discovered that I could study questions such as altruism and human evolution from a scientific perspective as opposed to a novelistic perspective, in other words, my dad wrote about the human experience filtered through his personal life. But if I could do it filtered through a theory, mm -hmm. then I could, uh, I could really do something like what he and other novelists were doing. And so uh, these questions of multi-level selection and altruism and human evolution, these which for some people were like taboo. And so they ran away from those questions. I ran towards them. And uh, I saw that, for, among other things, I could make my mark. And part of wanting to be like my dad was to be well-known. So that gave me a kind of an ambition that a lot of people don't have. I was aiming high, you might say. Mm -hmm. And so to do something like contest rejection of group selection was, for me, alluring. Not 
not something that I would want to run away with. So that's a little bit as to kind of explain what I do. Mm. I've always admired your willingness to say, you know, I wanted to be well known and your, mm-hmm. your interest in taking something that's controversial to elevate the interest outsiders would then have in the science. And I, Karen and I often talk about this with the podcast of studying things that are sort of catchy and using that to get people to pay attention to then you know, be able to dig into the science. We mentioned it in the intro, but I want to reiterate, you're here to talk about your new book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. And I love the discussion of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. So in your prologue, you remind us that there was a time when, quote, the Catholic Church still regarded science as a legitimate path to God. He seems to have provided an inspiration or model for your current work in this book. So I wonder if you could tell us about that connection and and what your current goals are. Right. Teilhard de Chardin was a Jesuit priest and a paleontologist in the first half of the 20th century. This was at a time when you could be a scientist priest, and that actually still exists to a degree. And he was part of the team that discovered one of the first missing links called Peking Man. And he wrote a book called The Phenomenon of Man, which I had heard about, but I really didn't feel the need to read until 2009, actually, the year of Darwin, uh, the 200th anniversary of his birth and the 150th anniversary of the origin of a species. And people like me were being invited all over the world to Darwin events, and including ones organized by the Vatican. Huh. And so I felt, what a good moment to uh, finally read The Phenomenon of, of Man. I always thought I was just doing my homework. But what I discovered was that he was amazingly prophetic about the modern study of cultural evolution. And what he wrote about was that in some ways, we are just another species, but in other ways, we are a new evolutionary process. In modern terms, that would be cultural evolution. And that made us, in some ways, as significant as the origin of life. (laughs) And so all of a sudden, he's elevating humans from just another species to something comparable to the origin of life. He takes us on a panoramic tour of the planet Earth. Before life, it was just another barren planet, like any other planet. And then life originated and spread like a kind of a skin over the globe and became so abundant that it began to alter the actual geological and atmospheric processes. And what is the difference between living processes and non-living processes? Well, living processes have a way of diversifying in endless forms, most beautiful, as Darwin put it. And so that was known as the biosphere. And then he said, imagine now that one species on the twig of a branch of the bushy tree of life all of a sudden begins to proliferate with amazing speed. That was human cultural evolution so fast that it started to overtop the whole tree. And that would be the expansion of humans over the globe. And then he said that this new phenomenon had a mental dimension. He called it the newosphere. There was a kind of a consciousness that was guiding evolution and the tiny grains of thought, as he put it, which would be small scale societies, began to coalesce into larger and larger grains and and, um, and then would ultimately would coalesce into a single global consciousness called the Omega Point. Mm-hmm. And what would that be but small-scale society coalescing into larger and larger societies, although where that goes and whether that goes in the direction of a global consciousness or some dystopia is very much at play. And, and his book, of course, had a spiritual dimension. As scientists, we like to think that we only study what is, not what should be, how we should separate those. But he did not separate those. Actually, he has been largely forgotten by scientists and today is read primarily for his spiritual quality. But I wanted to retain that spiritual quality. And so I said, my new book is, is actually an update of the phenomenon of man. 
And so I think one thing that you're describing in the way humans work within this this context from Chardin is this cultural revolution of always trying to change and improve ourselves. And one thing that you say is that our many attempts to improve our circumstances are to a large extent pre-Darwinian. We were wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and what you mean by it. I'm very, very happy to, and then uh, maybe react to some of the other things that you just uh, said. But we all know about the conflict between evolution and religion, and there's other conflicts. For example, people that are passionate about culture, but not from a religious perspective, cultural studies folks, they're also very skeptical of evolution. People who worry about social Darwinism, the idea that evolution leads to the justification of social inequality, they also have a hard time with evolution. Those are some of the conspicuous conflict zones. But then there's large numbers of people who actually accept Darwin's theory of evolution, at least in their own minds, but don't actually put it into any kind of a use in either their professional or personal lives. For them, it's an article of faith that Darwin's theory is consistent with the way that they think. They don't know. It's an article of faith. And come to test, we find massive inconsistencies. And an example I give right off the bat has to do with the economics profession, Mm. Um, and of course, the way we think about our economies is so very important and impactful. The first thing you need to know about evolution is that it's based on relative fitness. It uh, doesn't matter how well you survive or reproduce, only that you do so more than others in your vicinity. So evolution is all about relative fitness. But economic theory, at least orthodox economic theory, is all about absolute fitness or utility. The, the, the root assumption is, is that individuals maximize their absolute utilities without reference to anyone else. And so right away, you have like a huge divide between evolutionary thinking and economic thinking. Economic thinking had decades, even centuries to correct itself, but didn't. And so here we have a case of an enormously complicated and influential body of knowledge in economic theory, which actually is not consistent at a root level with evolutionary theory. And that's why Robert Frank, an influential economist at Cornell University, wrote a book called The Darwin Economy, in which he predicts that ultimately Darwin, not Adam Smith, will be regarded as the father of economics. So you, uh, you take that example for one field, economics, and just multiply that for every domain of human knowledge. And what you'll find is, is that that domain has become very sophisticated in its own way. Almost always it's secular. Nobody's believing in supernatural agents. But because it developed in isolation from evolutionary theory, mm -hmm. then the ideas do not necessarily match up. And that matching is something that is only taking place in the present, as you guys know, as well as anyone else, because this is the whole movement of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary anthropology is making that point itself. I don't have to make that point. That is all of these disciplines newly being rethought from an evolutionary perspective is something that's been taking place only during the last 20 or 30 years is when those terms were coined. So I want to circle back to your writing. I've been mining this territory, both as a scholar, but also following your lead, starting an evolutionary studies program here. We've had a very successful program using the model that you developed when your focus was on improving evolution education. And I want to circle back around to, to that too and, and find out where you are with that now. But in teaching our Evolution for Everyone course, maybe eight to 10 times now. I've, I've reread Evolution for Everyone, your book, probably at least five times, and it never fails to inspire me uh, because of, of the way you write. Your tone, how compelling it is, how pithy 
the chapters are. And I really would love to hear more about your workflow, how you remain so productive and sort of what your day looks like. Part of our podcast is it's in the title, like what goes into the sausage of science? Okay, well, first, thanks for the great compliment. Um, <laughs> and to talk about my writing process and also my work process, it is like sausage, by the way, it's not a pretty sight. Uh, I do not have a lot of support. I don't have a secretary or anything. Uh, I have a policy uh, of let no project be unborn. If there's a new project that's meritorious, I'll do everything in my power to birth it. And then I let them compete in a sense. It's really quite evolutionary uh, to have many projects and then at any particular moment to um, maximize my marginal utility about which project I work on. That has to be configured in a way that if a project is neglected, it doesn't die. These projects need to be like hardy plants that just kind of sit there waiting for fruit and water and fertilizer. But, you know, most of my projects are like that. Not too many of my projects have died, even though all of them could receive more attention. So it's kind of like a quality-quantity trade-off with life history theory. Do you have just a few offspring or many? And so uh, I definitely max out on the on the many. So there's point one. A uh, Point two is that starting with Evos, uh, which was in 2003, I made a decision to operate not just in individual mode, but in programmatic mode. My experience there was that I was having a good time doing this work and writing about it and traveling the world and and stuff like that. And there was a worldwide community, but not at my university. And what would it be like, I thought, to actually create the kind of diffuse social environment that existed without my help and to try to foster that at my university. And so that was the beginning of my programmatic efforts. And then it came the Binghamton Neighborhood Project and the Evolution Institute. And it was hard work, gratifying in some ways, but not really my temperament in others. My temperament is really to be alone and I'm quite introverted believe it or not. But I think that uh, at the end of the day, obviously, by definition, to be programmatic is to be capacity building and to be actually creating a capacity that goes beyond what any individual can do. And no matter whether you liked it or not on a day-to-day level, and it's always a matter of both, then it's very important to do. If you really want to get something done, then you've got to at some point operate in programmatic mode. And now when I look back and I see everything that's going on, not by myself, but influenced by some of the programs that I've been in, in the first place, it's gratifying, but in a way that you can take the egoism out of it entirely. And it's just wonderful that this is... uh, taking place. And then the final thing I'll say, getting back to the writing process, is that I love to write. I got that either genetically or culturally or both from my dad. But for me, writing is uh, is the most wonderful mental challenge. And to have some audience in mind, and it has to be the correct audience, of course. So I know who it is I'm trying to reach. I know something about them, at least in my own mind. And then I'm trying to create something that communicates with them. Then that is a great challenge. And it's a challenge that has a like an engineering component. It's almost like it's a cost-benefit consideration. For example, such things as just number of words, that since you're trying to communicate to an audience, information is being communicated through words. It's like optimal foraging theory. There's some value that's taking time. So there's some kind of E over T ratio. And the smaller you can get that T, if you can say something in 10 words rather than 30, you better do it. (laughs) And when I correct my students' writings all the time, they probably hate me for it. Because in the margins, I'll rewrite something and I'll say, my 12 words beat your 48 words. 
and on and on. And then there's also just stumbling that if you see poorly written prose, and if you were to do an eye tracker, uh, probably these studies have been done, then what the poor reader would be doing with poorly written prose, he'd come up upon that, there'd be some bit of confusion, you'd have to go back, 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 and you'd see the zigzaggy pattern of eye movement. But with smooth prose, then you just glide along. And so every sentence needs to lead to every other sentence. There has to be human interest and all of that kind of thing. So you have to tell a story. That's another thing. We're storytelling animals. So you have to be really worth the narrative arc and things like that. That's just as true for nonfiction as it is for fiction. But if you approach it in this way, then it just becomes very pleasurable. The same way that a hobbyist would like to build model airplanes. It's a skill that you've gotten good at and it's that engrossing. And so it's lucky to approach writing in that way. Not that many do. And of course, as a craft, it does take a long time. And actually, I'll make a final point, which is the opportunities to write and to be read are greater than ever before, thanks to the internet. And thanks, this is spoken, not written, but it's the same kind of thing. So actually, first of all, everyone should keep a journal write for themselves. There's a piece of advice. And there's lots of research that you know from um, people like Jamie Pennebaker that document the therapeutic value of just telling yourself a story. Mm-hmm. It makes sense of your experience. It provides meaning. It removes ambiguity. Even any story, it doesn't matter whether it's the right one or the wrong one, but it just makes life seem more certain. And then write for others in a blog or whatever. There's opportunities to do that. And it's at that point that you'll get the practice that, you know, those 10,000 hours that they talk about to become good at anything. Is that something your father instilled early on, keeping a journal? Is that something he had you do when you were younger? Is there anything that he did to encourage you writing when you were young? No, and that's why I think that actually, here's a point about learning, that a lot of social learning takes place not by overt teaching, Hmm. but just that the learner is in the vicinity of the teacher. But what the learner does is actually self-created more than actively taught. And actually, the way I write is very different than the way my dad wrote. My dad would write pages and pages and then throw them out. (laughs) Um, He'd throw out entire books. And so, and then he'd have many drafts. And for me, writing is much more of a sentence-by-sentence construction. So my dad didn't actually play much of an active role in schooling me to write, but he did tell stories that I picked up on. And one thing he said was, don't use the word perspiration when you could use the word sweat. Mm. And so a mistake a lot of people make in science is to write for an imagined expert. So the reader you have in mind is some expert, and then you're trying to impress the expert. But the reader you should have in mind is your mother, Uh, maybe even your mother sitting on the toilet. (laughs) and then communicate at that level and the experts will be grateful. So I picked up little nuggets of wisdom from my father. Another thing he said was, uh, don't expect the reader to be sympathetic with somebody who owns a yacht. (laughs) You know, stuff like that, that uh, um, he would give me those pieces of advice. There's some real wisdom there. And one of the things I've often told my students in writing, for me even, because I don't want to read long papers either, especially when they're not well written. But when I have them writing for a public audience, I tell them, write something that's no longer than you could finish while you're sitting on the can. So, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some people actually get a lot of reading done there. I don't know those people, but maybe some tweeting too. But anyway, speak- <laughs> 
add a little bit more, just in more detail, that if you look at the structure of my new book, also Evolution for Everyone, chapters are very short. In my uh, my new book, which actually, if anyone has read Evolution for Everyone or who teaches from it, I highly recommend my new book as a replacement for my old book for reasons that I'll mention in a, in a little bit. But the structure of most of the chapters of my new book are, first of all, the chapter is about some big, important topic like multi-level selection or evolution going beyond genetic evolution or policy as a branch of biology, some, you know, big piece of the of what I'm trying to get across. But then I subdivide it into three stories. And so there's the chapter, and then there's the stories within the chapter, and then the stories are put together in a way that progresses. So each successive story adds to the previous story. So in policy as a branch of biology, the first story is you know, super biological, eye development. And then the next story is pretty biological, immune system dysfunction. But actually that manifests as both physical disorders and mental disorders. And then the third story is mostly behavioral child development and how we raise our children. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and so that makes the larger point that all aspects of biology, the distinction between something that's behavioral and non-behavioral is actually not a meaningful difference. And the chapter makes that point through a succession of stories. And there's a structure that anybody could use mm -hmm. um, in, what they're, in what they're writing. Yeah. I will definitely have to replace evolution for everyone then. And I also like that you do what we always need to do, which is open up with a little background history in this one, giving them the history of evolutionary theory and the context in which Darwin wrote, and even throwing in a little biography of Kropotkin, who I never, ever talk about, but now <laughs> we'll be talking about. So thank you for that. And we always end by asking folks a little bit about them because like you do, we want, we want to know a little bit more. And you told us so many things in your writing about your hobbies. And I remember when I was visiting you last, you took off to go fishing. So I was wondering how you, as busy as you are, maintain, or I don't know if balance is the right word, because it sort of reifies this idea that there is ever balance. But uh, what do you do for fun? Well, balance is a word I use a lot. And it's super important. So I feel very lucky to have gotten married and have children and things like that. For me, the outdoors is huge. And I think, you know, talking about mismatch theory, that everyone should be spending as much time outdoors as possible. The health effects of being outdoors and physically active, and of course, eating natural foods and, and all of that are inestimable. So we owe it to ourselves to do that. And I'm lucky to have actually put that into uh, action. I was fishing two days ago. Mm. And uh, I caught those fish and I ate them. <laughs> so, so on a typical day, I think this is true for most people. Who among us is capable of more than four or five hours of concentrated work? I'm not. I'll give you that. And so if you get up early and then or what, take the best part of your day. It might be morning for some people, evening for others. But take the best part of your day and dedicate that to the most important things. That's someone that not everyone does. In fact, a very, very common mistake. Everyone has so much basically, you know, crap that they have to deal with in their jobs. You know, so much that they have to do that they would rather not do. And it's very common for people to think, well, I have to do that before I can get to Mm -hmm. the really important thing. That'll never work. That's a, a recipe for disappointment and frustration and lack of productivity. So there's a nautical saying, uh, one hand for yourself, one hand for the ship. Not good for the ship if you get swept overboard. And so therefore, nobody's going to do this for you. And if you're in academia, actually, you've got a lot of degrees of freedom, whether you're a student or a teacher. I mean, really, an academic should never complain compared to somebody that's in a, a job where they're told 
what to do. So one hand for yourself, take the best part of your day and devote it to your most important projects. There will be time for the other things Mm -hmm. and there will be time for you to get outdoors and go on and so forth. And a lot of that depends on how you configure your lifestyle because really the way to lead a healthy life is to have a lifestyle that requires it. So if you live, for example, in the country and you keep a large garden and, and you have a dog and you have to walk the dog and you have to tend the garden and you have to mow the lawn, you have to do that, you physically move him when you, when you uh, do that. You don't have a choice. You've created a lifestyle where you don't have that choice. And so people do say I'm productive and I guess objectively I am, but uh, that doesn't mean that I'm working 18 hours a day. It means that I work effectively and I make sure that I especially spend out time outdoors doing things that involve physical movement. Movement is medicine. And I think one last question I have. For someone who's so prolific that can write so many books, what are you reading in your spare time for fun? Oh gosh, Uh, you know, I do love novels, but don't get to read them very often. Maybe the thing to do is to just tell you the latest book that I've read that I really loved. Yeah. And it speaks to a lot of the other things that we're talking about. It's actually by... uh, one of my former PhD students, uh, Dan O'Brien, who was the person who started the Binghamton Neighborhood Project with me. And he then went on to Harvard and worked with the great sociologist Robert Sampson and started something called the Boston Area Research Initiative, which is a consortium of universities that works with the city of Boston, basically to create a smart city. And he's now on the faculty of Northeastern University where he continues to direct this program. And the title of his book is called The Urban Commons and has a long subtitle. But the topic of the book, and I'll spend, if I may, just a few minutes describing it, is what does it mean to turn a large social entity such as a city into a smart city? Calling it smart is basically endowing it with an organism-like quality. And one piece of this is a a three-digit telephone number, 311, which you call not to report an emergency, that's 911, but to report any minor dysfunction, such as a fallen tree or a pothole or anything that ain't working, you can dial 311. And this originated as a cultural mutation in the city of Boston in order to handle inappropriate calls to 911. But soon enough, they realized that this was actually something that would be valuable in its own right by turning the citizens of a city into the eyes and ears of the city. It's like creating a perceptual organ so that it's not up to the city employees to notice these things. It will be noticed for them. And then that information would be funneled like a nervous system, and then it would be processed and it would lead to its its repair. And so Dan has pioneered this in Boston. Turns out that this is so successful that there's like 400 cities that have 311s. But come to ask, how does this actually work? How do you get people to dial in, for example? Who does dial in? How do we make it unbiased? Because if there's differences in who uses it, then uh, it's not not for the good of the whole Uh city. So there's a lot of stuff to study and understand about actually making this work. And when he did that, this is what the book is all about. He discovered, and this is often smart cities and something like 311 is called civic tech, which means first there's a tech component. And the secondly, It's intended somehow to increase civic engagement in the city, get people more engaged in the governance of the city. But come to actually study it, what Dan shows beautifully in this book is that actually almost nobody uses 311 is doing it on behalf of the city. They're only doing it on behalf of their neighborhood. The only time they call is when something's happening in their backyard or in their neighborhood. And so right away, you make an evolutionary connection here. 
is that people are so much engaged in small-scale society. A city means nothing to them, really, for the, for the most part. And he actually did a study where he would put flyers out in neighborhoods to get people to use 311 more. One version of the flyer, the pitch was, help your neighborhood. And the other one was, help the city of Boston. Uh-huh. A really good study. And what he showed was the neighborhood appeal was effective. Uh-huh. And the Boston appeal, or you might as well not have done it. And no impact at all. So the bottom line there is that Dan, I'm very proud of him, mm. has really taken this approach to do governance, basically, at the scale of a city and taken it a very, very long way. So a lot of the books I read are you know, pretty dense and academic-y that way. I can't help it. But I'm also lucky that because evolution applies to all topics, then my reading can be suitably diverse. So mm. before that one, I was reading about Buddhism. And before that one, I was reading about, you know, something else completely different. So uh, I think that's one of the main things to be said about an evolutionary perspective is that it uh, provides a passport to all subjects. David, you're a wonderful polymath in that regard. And I love Dan's work and I'm going to have to look that book up. And as a big fan of 311, we have it here in Tuscaloosa. I I love calling it when the bushes are covering the sidewalk and I can't ride my bike to work. So <laughs> I know. You probably do it on behalf of the whole city. Dan. Yeah, on behalf of the whole city. Exactly. So how can folks who are more interested in you and your work, despite being an introvert who is an extrovert, how can they get a hold of you or find out more about you? Do you, I know you have have this view of life and the Evolution Institute, what's the best way to find out about your work or to talk to you? I've been operating in programmatic mode for so long that uh, I never even had a personal website until very recently. But now I do, so that if you go to davidsloanwilson.world or darwinianrevolution.com, it takes you to the same place. I have, for the first time, a personal website. But the other websites, please visit, are the Evolution Institute. Just type it in Google. History of Life. Type it in and you'll get to the magazine of the Evolution Institute. And prosocial.world is our practical framework for working with groups of all kinds anywhere in the world in order to employ these principles. So between prosocial.world, History of Life, Evolution Institute, and my own website, then uh, there's more of me than anyone could possibly want. Well, thank you for joining us on The Sausage of Science. If you want to know more about what we do, You can find me on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y. And Kara, are you on the social media thing, Jiggers? I am. You can find me at Kara Akabak, also on Twitter. And we want to thank the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology for sponsoring our program and for our wonderful executive producer, Caroline Owens, for making us sound super snazzy and fresh and please be sure to like us share us and rate us on any and all of your podcast platforms thank you very much david i'll be looking forward to your talk tonight thank you.